Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. I'm the producer of the show, David Lally, and I have a quick question for all of you before we kick off this episode. How many of you struggle with finances? I feel like it's a common struggle, almost seeming to be a never-ending treadmill day in, day out. Well, today we're going to take a listen to Brian at one of our live events where he shares with us how to develop a knack with money and get some tips and how-tos. So without further ado, let's listen in. We're talking about a quantum leap. So what I want to do is I want to show you how to have the knack with money, presuming you actually work, save it, then you have a bit of it, to go make a quantum leap with it. How many of you would like to have a quantum leap in your finances? How many would like to get out of the, the rat race economically? I'm going to show you how to do that. I'm going to share with you stuff for our own personal finances. Okay? I'm going to show you what we do and how we do it, not as a, a total blueprint for you, but just some ideas and some principles that will help you. We're going to be with some thoughts to get ahead of the game. Okay? The culture's view of financial success is this. Work more, buy more. That's what the culture says. Work more, buy more. That has become part of the American way. Work more, buy more. That is the rat race. That's the rat race. The hamster in the wheel, right? You heard it called the rat race. Is that true? So what is it in the middle of it is you're working, right? What's the bumper sticker? I owe, I owe. So off to work I go. Think about that. I owe, I owe. So off to work I go. What would it be like to go off to work and you didn't know anybody anything? What would you do if you didn't need it? Would that be nice? Here's what it is. It's very empowering. It's very freeing. I do this because I'm privileged to do this. Does that make sense? Like this is a privilege. This is an awesome deal. I mean, this is just a great experience for me and my family to spend it with you doing this stuff. I mean, I get to sit here and go through the events and listen to the speakers. And I mean, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. It's always my favorite part. (laughs) But the power comes and the freedom comes from doing it because you want to, not because you have to. Does that make sense? So there's your work that resides in the market and that produces then the revenue, okay? So you make the money in the market. And this is the dynamic that people do, 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 the hamster on the wheel, they call it the rat race, yada, 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 yada. And what happens is because when we make decisions, especially the small decisions, what kind of decisions? The small decisions that we finance and then kick the can down the road then that road has to be taken care of. You can't control what goes on with the government, okay? You can't control what they do in the politicians. And here's the thing, just so you know, when you see sausage being made, you're less likely to eat it. When you see how politics actually works behind the scenes, you're less likely to get excited about it. And the bottom line is, right now we've gone from seven to $21 trillion in debt inside the last 10 years. When you kick the can out there, someday that has to get paid. That's money that is financed. Does that make sense? When you do that in your personal life and you kick the can out there, what happens is that gets financed and now you're working for bills that are coming in the future for decisions you made in the past. And here's what I'm going to share with you. Rarely, rarely, on occasion it's true, but rarely is it a big decision that does that. It's a series of small decisions. Are you guys with me, yes or no? So I am going to talk a little bit about budgeting just for you. 71% of Americans 
admit to having personal financial worries. What's the word? About not having enough savings, job issues, debt and credit problems. Okay, you have a choice. So here's the way it works. You have a certain amount of energy, right? You got mental, physical, and emotional energy, right? So here's your energy tank. If you take 50% of that tank, and the psychologist will say, this is much greater than this, and you use it to worry, what would your life be like if you were able to take 50% of your energy and focus it on growing? It takes the same amount of energy to worry as it does to grow. Same amount of energy. This will make you feel bad after you expend that energy. So this is like, imagine doing the hardest workout of your life that helped you get fatter, sicker, and more depressed. But it was a ferocious workout. Would that be really bad? What if you do the same ferocious workout and it makes you stronger, healthier, fitter, and more clear-minded? Life is life. It's a good life. It's not always great. There's challenges in life. There's difficulties in life. But this right here, you have control over this. You do. You have control over where you spend your energy. And the more you worry, the more you will worry. And the more of this tank that will continue to get emptied. It's not a condition. It's not a virus. What happens is this is a drift that happens, and it's a slow leak, and unless it's consciously, and why I love who you are and who your colleagues are as we go and coach and train all over the world, is this. You are people who've made a conscious decision, as best I can, I'm going to try to plug the hole. I saw someone post it on Facebook. One of their friends said, why are you going to this event? What are you going to learn that you don't already know? You might actually learn nothing you don't already know. But you're going to come out of here after two and a half days differently than you were on Friday night. Is that fair to say yes or no? And that's why you do it. And that's why you're the best. Because you're saying, okay, I might have a bit of this going on. How many of you have a bit of worry going on? How many of you are worried you just raised your hand? Let me see your hand. Here's what happens. You take this energy, it will drain you. You take this energy, it will build you. Now, if we'll do the right thing with the money, off to the races we go. Gallup shows that 65% of Americans do not budget. Dave Ramsey's work is not finished. There are $6 billion in America in unused gift cards each year. Six with a B. There are countries that $6 billion is not their gross domestic product as an entire country. And that's just the stuff we don't spend on gift cards we got from someone who kind of knows us but not know us well enough to buy us what we freaking want. <laughs> right? It takes a bit of time. And so I'm not saying they're bad things. I'm just saying that $6 billion of them aren't used. If you were minding your dollars, you know what those are worth. Is that an example of that? Okay, here's another one. Here's a small decision. Americans pay, on average, $7 billion a year in ATM fees. But here's the deal. My wife will tell you, I am a fanatic. I will spend more than an ATM fee to drive to some place where there is no ATM fee. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I won't pay ATM fees. Because ATM fees, to me, are a reinforcement of my own lack of organization. So I live off cash. 
Okay? I live off cash. But that's a little decision. Like, here's the thing. You go get $20, and it costs you $2.50. What rate of interest did you just pay? Higher than any credit card you've ever had. I love in Vegas. I mean, I love the fact that Vegas has slot machine and an ATM machine and a slot machine side by side by side. And if you go to get money from the slot machine, they charge you $10 in ATM fees. They're like, look, we know you're stupid with money and we think you're going to pay it. And people are like, <laughs> will ATM fees, not paying ATM fees, make somebody a millionaire? Absolutely not. But the person who thinks about the ATM fee is the person who can become a millionaire. Are you guys with me, yes or no? So where are we? The richest nation in the world. You're on welfare in America. You're inside the top 20% of earners in the world. So how is the richest country in the world doing with their money? Well, we know the country's spending more than it's making, right? 21 trillion in debt. So how are people doing? How are they doing when they get to the next phase? For most people, the biggest phase and change in life is married, have kids, and then next is go into some form of retirement. So the average person in America who's nearing retirement, these are people who have seriously considered retirement, maybe they're in the AARP, they have a financial plan, that kind of stuff. So people who are right on the cusp of it, the average money they have saved for retirement is 136 grand total, which if you got a very solid return on that, would give you $9,100 a year. The average need in America is 45 grand. So that's a $36,000 shortfall each year. And by the way, people are living longer. The sound of silence. Hello, savings, my old friend. I need to try to find you again because I bought these Jimmy Choo shoes. I'll be working till I'm 92. Oh, I can go all day on this one, just so you know. 33% of working Americans have nothing for retirement. 33% of working Americans have nothing for retirement. And this is one of the reasons why. So what happens then? Again, I want you to know I'm as apolitical as I've ever been in my whole freaking life, especially now. But I'm going to tell you this. Here's where we're going to start shifting. I don't have anything. I haven't made the right decisions. I haven't done what I need to do. So it's going to be the government's problem. You need to do it. Now, here's what I want to tell you. I'm going to stand before you today and tell you boldly that I'm a one percenter. Occupy the Buffini's home. I started out in America as in the bottom one percent. When I came to America, I had $92 in my wallet, got hit in a motorcycle accident. I'm 19. I have $252,000 in bills. I went down and they said, you're probably entitled to something from the government. And I, I hate the concept, but I was down to three grapefruits in my refrigerator. And I went down with my leg in a full cast. I went down and they said, you're entitled to $45 a month. And I swear to God, I stood at the counter. I didn't want to be there. And I said, you guys need it more than I do. I didn't want to be here in the first place. $45 a month, great. I'm on my own. Fine. I started at the bottom 1% and I became the top 1%. And that is one of the greatest things about America. That's why America is what it is. And it's not like that in any other country. In any other country, I'd say other than Canada, any other country in the world, you have what happened to me at the start of your life. You're there for the rest of your life. Almost every other country in the world. But not here. So what does that mean? That the opportunity to have a quantum leap 
and go as far as you want to go economically is here more than anywhere else in the world. Is that a true statement, yes or no? There are people making fortunes in other places, but here, here, it's more doable than anywhere else. Now, I don't think it's as easy as it used to be. I just think it's easier than anywhere else. Does that make sense? So, let's get after that. So we're going to start doing the right things. We're going to start budgeting our money. We're not going to throw it away. Here's what we're going to do. The ultimate formula is you want to do this. You're going to do your work. You're still in the market. And you're going to create revenue. Yeah, you're going to go to work every day. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Or even if you don't owe, and you don't owe, off to work you go. And then you're going to have what's called a working budget. Can you say working? A working budget means a dynamic budget. I told you, my family's budget just changed. We made a bunch of moves, made a bunch of changes doing all these different things. Change barns. By the way, Miss Anna's with us here this morning. Years ago, I said, here's the thing. I said, I don't believe in entitlement. Here's what I'll do. As hard as you work, I'll meet your commitment. I forgot she was related to Beverly. <laughs> so that girl's up at six every morning, four this morning, five yesterday. She's up with the horses. It's six days a week, 12 hours a day. And she's been doing it since she was 12 years old. And so hard worker, hard worker. And so I want to have the opportunity to support her. And we're competing against people you can't even believe. So, I mean, we're in this deep, deep waters here. Deep waters here. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm delighted the fact that because we made all these right decisions along the way, years ago, before she was born, we made a lot of good decisions, followed this formula. How many of you have a dream you want to pursue? Let me see your hands. How many of you have someone in your life who has a dream you'd like to support them? This is why I don't buy the ATM fees. That's why I don't do the credit card stuff. And this is why I follow this formula to build a fortune so I can joyfully support this stuff, okay? So the first thing is you get a working budget. If you're working hard, and if you're certainly working our system, and you're working hard, you're going to have the next step, which is a surplus. So if you're making 349, hopefully after 20 years of listening to the clown on stage, you're not spending 370. That's the hope. And that if you do enough of that, you'll have what's called a what? You have to have a surplus to turn it into a fortune. You can't borrow your way to a fortune. How many of you'd like to have a fortune? Can I see your hands? All right. And again, a lot of people are here for the first time. Please, please understand. This is based on this solid foundation that you're working earning and following the budgeting programs and living within your means and having a surplus. Everything I'm about to say for the next 45 minutes is based on that principle. Now, if you don't have this, that's okay, but you need to know when you leave this event, you got to go to work on this or you're on shaky ground. If that makes sense, say aye. So this is the foundation and we jump from there. I'm going to show you how to build a fortune. Here's some principles that I've learned along the way. I didn't invent any of this. I was broke. I was a house painter's son. I was from Ireland. I didn't know anybody with money. I became a student. Here's what I found out. First, invest in what you know. Invest in what you know. Only invest in what you know. You have a friend who has a friend. They have this biofuel spasm solution. And you can get in on the ground floor of the spasming biofuels. Here's a good tip. If you can't pronounce it, don't invest in it. <laughs> Phil Fisher, who's a billionaire himself, says the stock market is filled with individuals who know the price of everything but the value of nothing. Second thing, think long term. Think long term. No matter what age you are, think long term. Now, 
I want all the folks who are under 30 years of age to stand up at this time. Can I have everyone under the age of 30 to stand up at this time? Great to have you here, by the way. Fantastic. Fantastic. Great to see you. Great to see you guys. Now, stay standing for a second, because here's what I'm going to say to you. I'm going to have to work a little harder with the older fogies here. You guys have the number one ingredient, for the most part, of what it takes to build a fortune, and that's time. Now, you can build a fortune, but you have to start now. And it starts by saving five bucks now, 10 bucks now, 100 bucks now, 150 bucks now, 300 bucks now. If you'll do that now, and you put that in the mix over time, that's how fortunes are made. Are you with me? And if you'll do it now, you will be in a place where along life's journey, you'll have the energy and the power to go and pursue all these quantum leaps because you won't have near the money worries that most of your peers do. Does that make sense? So I'm delighted you're here or someone brought you here and you take a hold of this stuff, you're gonna be on fire, okay? So let's cheer for these folks because they're our next group of millionaires. Great stuff. Hopefully, you'll have enough money, you'll be able to get into politics and then cut the spending. <laughs> Investing, according to Paul Samuelson, who you won a Nobel Prize, okay? So I'm not listening to Harry the painter, I'm listening to Paul Samuelson. He said, investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take 800 bucks and go to Vegas. This guy won a Nobel Prize for this stuff. It should be like watching grass grow and paint dry. Well, that's really sexy. That's really going to do well on the infomercial. That's a headline that'll produce a New York Times bestseller. Bore your way to success. Are you guys with me? When you're doing it right, that's what it's going to feel like. I say that because you have to know in your gut, no matter what, you got to do point number three is stay the course. Stay the course. When you feel like you're standing on the freeway and everyone is flying past you, stay the course. When you've been paying on real estate you've owned for seven years and you're still only paying off a couple hundred bucks of principal every month, stay the course. When you bought the property the day the market died, but you fought hard to keep it, stay the course. Corey Ten Boone knows a little bit about perseverance. She said this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. You reevaluate annually. With the technology we have today, how often do people reevaluate? Momentarily. It used to be, oh, you can't grow the grass and pull it up in three days to see if it's grown. Nobody's waiting that long anymore. And that's why the dynamics and the technology, and we'll talk a little bit about the technology today. One of the reasons you're going to see wilder swings in the stock market, for example, in the years to come is because everything's set up automatically. So you have all of these funds that the minute the stocks hit below a certain price, it's an automatic sell. And boom, 1,000 points, 1,500 points will disappear. And you'll see these wild swings. So those swings will be even wilder in the future. So you don't even want to participate in a roller coaster. You want to be ready for it. I'll tell you later. You know, for me, I have some funds sitting in cash. I had pre-orders in place for a long, long time. Okay, if the market came down to that, great. And if it doesn't, that's fine. We'll just keep throwing cash at it. And then my friends, the English, pulled the Brexit. 
and all hell done broke loose. God save the queen. And what happened is all these orders I had in there while I was sleeping. Boom, ba 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 and then two days later, people figure out, hey, this is good for America. Wham, 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 wham. God save the queen. Okay? Peter Lynch, he was the guy that, you know, started the Fidelity Fund. Kind of the inventor of the modern mutual fund. And I'll talk about mutual funds and their future demise here soon. But he said, know what you own and know why you own it. Now, this is everything. This is real estate. This is stocks. This is everything. Cash. Know what you own and why you own it. Know what you own and why you own it. If you have anything that you own that you're not quite sure why you own it, or you couldn't explain it to someone in an introductory part of a conversation over a cup of coffee, then you need to get rid of it. I don't care if it's doing well. How can you possibly have confidence in something you don't understand? What's happened is you've had to go and abdicate your own thought process. And again, I'm going to talk about getting help here in a minute. So you're going to look at it every year, and then you're going to re-examine your strategy every three years. Now, again, this just won't sell an infomercial anytime soon. Bob Parsons was the founder of GoDaddy. This guy is a character, a huge businessman. But he goes, never stop investing, never stop improving, never stop doing something new. So we're going to do a little investing. I know we have some younger folks here, but this is everybody. This is the deal. This is a pretty good representation for this audience. Okay which is the proportion of real estate hold, stocks and cash, and then other. And we'll get into all of this, all right? I absolutely am a thousand percent convinced the core of my being that owning real estate is the single great investment in the world. And that has never changed. And oh, by the way, I've been doing a lot of reading on it. I'm doing a lot of researching on it after living it for 30 years. And then I went over to Europe and I got hit over the head by a two by four about how powerful real estate really is, how powerful it is how strong it is, how sustainable it is, how that people are always going to need three things in life, food, shelter, and clothing. We're in the shelter business. And as the markets change and so on and so forth, and one of the reasons why, as industries change and economies change, so for example, fair to say that most countries in Europe are certainly more socialistic than they would be in America. Is that fair to say? So for example, in London, it is extraordinarily difficult for people to buy a first-time buyer home. Very, very difficult. The average Londoner has to be making 100000 a year and have 150000 down to buy a two-bedroom flat. Okay? And we're not talking about Park Avenue or Berkeley Square. Okay? We're talking about a two-bedroom flat. That's hard. So the owners of real estate, what happens is their value keeps going up because more and more people are renting. And when more and more people are renting, there's more and more pressure on rents and the rents continue to go up. Is that a true statement, yes or no? One of the reasons why I am not for socialism is because I grew up in it. And what socialism does, it does this. It mainly guarantees that people at the top get to stay there. Forty years ago, the top 20 companies in France are the exact same 20 companies today. Could you imagine that in America? The top 20 companies 40 years ago, two-thirds of them aren't even around. They've been bought by somebody else or gone in different directions. Other companies, other innovations have come. Forty years ago, Apple was a fruit. Are you with me? Now it's a continent. Are you guys hearing me? Yes or no? So I've always been a big real estate guy. How many of you guys have heard me railing on owning real estate? Okay. Well, we got a chance and we walked the streets in London and we were all over the place. 
And Bev and I would go out every night after the evening, walking around, all around. And this is Bond Street, okay? This is where the name James Bond came from. And you walk around, you see these beautiful buildings? They go on this street and that street and this street and that street and this street and that street. I'm like, who owns all this stuff? What goes on? And I, you know, I'm just naturally curious. I'll tell you a little side story you have no business telling you in a minute. <laughs> but the Queen, just her London downtown rents, 12 billion a year. She doesn't disclose the outside of London stuff. Now, the Queen has also been known to live within her means. <laughs> That's a great gig. I declare this home a palace. Y'all pay for it. So now she's 60 years reinvesting 10 billion, 9 billion, 12 billion. After a while, it really starts to add up, you know. But in an off-comment remark one time, the Queen leaked out her philosophy on real estate. She was talking about horses, and people were asking about horses. She goes, they're like real estate. You should buy, but never sell. Horses are like real estate. You should buy, but never sell. You should buy, but never sell. The queen was buying real estate when the Germans were bombing it. When they were bombing her city, now she bought places to give money to people who were displaced. That's what she did. So they were bombing and bombing and bombing. So imagine this. There was no insurance at the time. They were bombing the houses, and London was eviscerated. They're bombing their houses. The people have no money. The queen would write them a check for the value of her property. Is that a good thing? And then she said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build nice properties where that was. And then she kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And just, you know, it's worked out well for her. <laughs> you want bling? I mean, she got some. We're Tower of London, we went there. People stand all line. Just to, can you imagine people waiting in line for two hours to see your bling? That's what they do at the Tower of London. This farmer has been working for a long time. Now, this next piece, I thought years ago, I would never say this to a bunch of realtors because it would sound patronizing that I would teach people who are in real estate about real estate investing. But every time I had a one-to-one -one conversation with somebody about real estate investing, this next statement dropped their jaw. And I said, okay, I'm going to start teaching them then. And what's interesting is the reason why most people make mistakes at real estate is that they are trying to hit two targets and they are two radically different targets. So there's only two reasons to invest in real estate. There's cash flow, and there's what? Appreciation. Appreciation means the property's gonna go up in value, I'm gonna hold it. Cash flow means it's gonna spit off income for me. What do you think is the single decision that 99% of people who invest in real estate, including realtors, what's the single decision people make that sends them off on the wrong track to make the wrong decision to buy the wrong property is? Cash flow? What's that? They want both. How many of you want both? Honest to God. Of course. Of course. I want to eat pizza and be thin. That's what I want. Hasn't worked out. You have to decide the purpose of your investment. And by the way, watch this. Look up here. This is what the breakthrough was for me. This was massive, and I'm going to tell you, I told it to my stockbroker, and he said, I've talked to everyone I know and everyone in the business, and no one's ever thought of this. But here's what I discovered. It's not just true in real estate, it's true in stocks as well. Everybody's trying to have both. You have to decide with every investment, what do I want? Am I looking for cash flow, or am I looking for appreciation? If is it possible that you invest in something here, 
and it grows to be something like this, and it's up in value and you pay off the debt, will you eventually get some cash flow, yes or no? Yes. There's principles for making the decisions. I'm going to give you some criteria for making the decisions, but here's what I'm going to say to you. Every time you decide to invest, you either got to say to yourself, is this an appreciation decision or is this a cash flow decision? And as long as you say that every time and then make the decision and commit to it, you have a chance of winning. If that makes sense, say I. If you try to hit two targets, you will miss both. Aim for two, miss two. What's the sniper's rule? Aim small, miss small. If you aim for both, you will get neither. That's the only way people have messed up in real estate. You see, if you're investing in appreciation and all of a sudden a down market comes, now you know you've got to gird yourself up and grind. And I'm going to hold this bad boy and I'm going to chip away, chip away until my time comes. I know I've got to do that. If you're for cash flow, you already know I have this expectation. I've got to maintain this thing. I've got to keep it going. And there's a good chance it's not going to be worth much more than what I got. It may even go down in value. But I did it for this cash flow is to supplement an income. If this makes sense, say aye. So I'm going to give you this principle and I'm going to apply it first to real estate. But understand, I'm going to demystify stocks for you. Because if you'll use the same criteria to look at stocks from now on, everything will change. And then I'm going to show you some examples to show you how I do it. Is that fair? So, appreciation rules. Here it is. First, here's the first principle. What's appreciated in the past? Just like people, I've done it before, I can do it again. Here's what I could say. San Diego, La Jolla, overlooking the ocean, good chance. Good chance. Coronado Island. It's an island on the ocean. Great demand. Second highest rental demand in the whole state of California. Good chance you buy there, you're going to pay a lot of money. It's not even going to come close to cash flowing, but you hold that bad boy long enough, it's going to be worth more than you paid for it. Good chance. For the most part, sometimes you bought next to something that was like a military base and they closed the military base down. That's going to have some impact on the value. Yes or no? We're going to get into all that. Another appreciation rule is you got to consider your age. You got to consider your age. You got to consider it. It's not everything, but it's something. So if something's going to take 20 years to appreciate, and you got the oxygen mask on, you know, might be time for the cash flow decision. Next. I know you've never heard this before, but location is key. La Jolla, California, Coronado, California, pretty good chance what? Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah. Great for cash flow. All right? You buy property in Indiana, Indianapolis, pretty good chance. The rental properties, not going to be worth that much more in the next five years. But in California, how much do you have to put down on investment property in order to get it to cash flow? Forever. Is that true? Well, in Indianapolis, Indiana and other such markets, you might be able to cash flow with an awful lot less down. Are you guys with me? Yes or no? Which is better, cash flow or appreciation? Okay, it's a trick question. The truth of the matter is they're both fantastic. And you can build fortunes in Indianapolis and you can build fortunes in La Jolla and Coronado or anywhere else in between. Are you guys with me? Appreciation rules, here it is, 10 years is the minimum hold. It's a minimum hold. An awful lot happens in 10 years. An awful lot happens in 10 years, okay? 
a lot of news stories happen in 10 days. Is that a true statement? So a lot happens in 10 years. Warren Buffett, and I'll quote him a lot here because I've studied him a lot here. Only buy something you'd be perfectly happy to hold. Watch this. If the market shut down for 10 years. Now he's talking about stocks in that regard. But I'm going to say the rules are actually the same. So how many of you are interested in appreciation? Could I see your hands? These are guidelines to take a look at, to use. When you are making a financial decision in the future, sit down, have a look at that, and make your decisions. When you see a property, and like in the pad, you be driving around, we see stuff all the time. You go, ooh, I like that. Mm, that sounds good. Why? Because you're showing buyers, you're showing buyers, you're showing buyers, and you see this one, and the buyer doesn't see the value, and you're like, man, they don't buy it, I'm going to buy it. How many of you have had that? Let me see your hands. And then you've got to ask yourself, hang on a second, is this an appreciation or a cash flow decision? By the way, some of the times you'll see, this is neither one. That was actually an emotional decision. I actually own a home, and I don't need another home for me. And I just was so into this, I almost bought that property because I'm so into what I do for a living. I'm so sold on real estate. I know the values there for this buyer, but that buyer is not you as a buyer. In order to do this, how many of you are in the real estate or lending business? Let me see your hands. You have to step outside yourself. So imagine it's like this. It's like Brian is on stage, he's wearing a suit and tie. Brian, the real estate investor, is wearing flip-flops, shorts, and a golf shirt. And you actually have to separate the roles for yourself. You might have a customer you're representing. How many of you have a customer you're representing who's buying investment real estate? Could I see your hands? You're going to have to make a negotiation with yourself and have a discussion with your investor client. By the way, I'm also an investor, and I'm also looking just so you know. Because that also can come into your mind. Like, should I really be giving this to a client? Am I only looking for the best deals for myself? You're going to have to wrestle through all that stuff. Are you with me, yes or no? I had a situation one time where I was ready to buy an investment property, cash ready to go. I had researched. I found a great investment. I had a client that it sounded like something they were interested in. Now, here's how I did. I'm not saying this is right, by the way, but I called up the client and I said, here's the thing. I found a great deal. And I want you to know, I was getting ready to write an offer on it, and I thought of you. I want to show it to you if you're interested, and if you're not, I'm able to sleep tonight and go and, and write an offer. And I've had it happen a couple of times where the client said, well, you're buying it, I'm buying it. <laughs> Service with a smile. <laughs> oh, by the way. <laughs> so, just for me, that's kind of what I needed to do. By the way, I'm not saying that's an ethical decision. It's not. I don't believe that. I just, that's what I needed to do for me and my business. Cash flow, appreciation, you make that decision, okay? We gave you some great rules here to follow for appreciation. Cash flow. First thing I want to do is recommend a book. This is a really good book. It's uh, Frank Gallinelli, What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow. And I, I really like it. And so if you want to get in the cash flow mode, I, I think it's a really good book to read. Okay? Got some good stuff. And again, like everything else, it's not the Bible. It's not, this is the only book ever written on the subject. It's just a good place to start that'll get you thinking. At the end of the day, you always got to trust your own what? Cash flow rules. Now again, I'm talking about real estate to start with. First thing when it comes to cash flow is management is the key. When you go buy a real estate property that you do not live in, you are now in the real estate management business. And even if you hire a manager, you are still in the real estate management business. And you have to know this stuff. Myself and my first mentor, Gene Coleman, we bought 28 units in Brawley, California. Brawley is a big old farming town way the heck out of here. And Beverly's going to enjoy this next section because she's going to hear about properties she never even knew we owned in this section. <laughs> I'll tell you this. 
If DocuSign had have existed when I was in real estate, we'd have owned half of San Diego, that's for sure. <laughs> but we had 28 units in Brawley. It's a farming community, two hours east of here, hotter than the face of the sun. And so places were always rented. We had an on-site manager. So little Anne Lanny is going through. I'm going through. And all of a sudden, I go back the last 12 months for doing the statements, and Gene and I own a bunch of stuff together, and I see the water bills off the charts. Don't like that. And then I see the income from the washers and dryers. We had 12 washers and dryers. It's gone down significantly each and every month. Now, this is one of the challenges when you have property right where you don't live. So Gene and I decide to drive out to Brawley, make a surprise pop-by. And as we pull up, it was Saturday morning, there is a line from here to the door for people, and they have got their clothes in laundry baskets. Unbeknownst to us, our little manager is running a nice little profit center for himself, like a public laundry service out of our apartment building, charging everybody, and they were paying him cash because the machines weren't working. Gene married a, a, a gal from Chile, so he spoke Spanish fluently. And first of all, the guy turns ghostly white when we show up. Hey, how you doing? Top of the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the hand in the cookie jar, like, mm -hmm. and Gene's talking to him in Spanish. And I can see the guy getting this and this and this. And then the guy does kind of a little laugh, and his face gets then stone cold. I go, Gene, what was that? He goes, I told him a little, a little Chilean story about how the, the milk cow one day wasn't producing milk because the butcher was stealing the cream. And he said, what did you do? Did you butcher the cow? He said, no, I butchered the butcher. <laughs> you guys have never seen The Sopranos? <laughs> Tony. So... Understand this, that happened for a year because we were busy, we had a lot going on, and you got a manager in place, and at the end of the day, you don't want to deal with it. Are you guys with me, yes or no? Okay. But you know, once you own investment properties, you are in the management business, even you're managing the managers. Ben Franklin was America's first millionaire. He said the person who doesn't know where the next dollar is coming from usually doesn't know where his last dollar went. Learn about gross rent multipliers. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this, but gross rent multipliers, if you're a residential realtor, and I know most residential realtors don't really deal with the investment side, I think you should. I think you should start looking for yourself. But do you know that up to 20% of your clientele that have purchased a home a second time, 20% of their clientele is considering buying investment real estate? And do you know they don't think you can help them? Clients who bought a primary residence from a residential realtor don't think residential realtors can help them buy investment real estate. It's in America, because America's specialization. When I first started painting when I was here, people say, I'm working on the inside. Do you do outsides? Huh? And I'm working on the outsides. They say, do you do insides? Our family's been in the painting business for 120 years and never heard that question. But in America, people are specialists. Does that make sense? I'm going to tell you, the majority of your clients don't know you can help them buy investment real estate. They don't know that you can help them with the primary element of their investment portfolio. So you need to learn about gross rent multipliers. Now, that's the standard and has been the standard for 40 years, but I'm going to tell you the game has changed. And it's changed with things like Airbnb and Pillow. Properties that absolutely made no sense three years ago are cash flow machines today. Now, again, I will tell you the rules will change. You know, there's issues going on. How many of you are in San Francisco? I mean, people are renting out their own rooms and this and that, and it's getting a bit goofy. And there will be more regulation in this, but I will say this. In certain instances, these kinds of innovations have made investment properties for appreciation also cash flow. Does that make sense? 
You have to stay on top of that. And here's what you do. Here's how you win. You make your decision based on the appreciation and this holds up no matter what. And if you do the Airbnb stuff and it cranks out cash flow, hallelujah. Don't make that part of your lifestyle. Take that extra cash and grind down on the mortgage. And then they change the rules and they change the regulations. Competition comes in. So the world changes and ah, oh, that went away or that gets diminished. It doesn't destroy you. It just means the double benefit's not there. If that makes sense, say aye. So when you're double winning, you double down. I'm going to show you another example of that here in a minute. When you own invest in real estate, expenses must be kept lean. I'm going to be teaching my kids how to own investment in real estate. That's the college education I'm going to give my kids because I'm really interested in them succeeding. And owning real estate's the way to do it. But one of the ways, just like in your personal life, you've got to keep your expenses lean. Here's the thing. My wife will tell you, I am fanatical about the details in our home. I mean, we moved into our house and it's a pretty nice house in a pretty nice area. And I'm just, re I'm a painter. And I walk into someone's home, I see the flaws in the paintwork. That's just the way I was trained. I walk in and I say, okay, I'm I will walk through these mansions. We're looking at 14 million dollar homes and I'm walking along. And we're going upstairs, and she goes, what do you think? And I go, they didn't sound under the railing. <laughs> now, I've learned to manage that refiner ability when it comes to people and relationships. But when it comes to my home, I'm not managing anything. It's my home. The big dog eats at home. So I refine the snot out of my home. Does that make sense? Okay. But here's the thing. When I own investment real estate, I have to meet the need of the market, not my own personal need. I love to have properties in superb condition. But someone who can afford 1700 bucks a month, they can't afford to live in my house. Now, I will always improve a property because I always, can you put your name to it? Can you put your name to it? I will always improve a property beyond what fair market value is. But I had to learn the discipline. I can't fix it up like I'm living there. Okay? That's important. You have to fix it up to the degree the market dwarfs. Ben Franklin again said this, beware of little expenses. A small leak will sink a great ship. A small leak will sink a great ship. You have to take care of the dollars so you can take care of the hundreds. You have to take care of the hundreds so you can take care of the thousands. You have to be able to take care of the thousands so you can take care of the millions. Small leaks sink great ships. Taxes use 1031 exchanges. It's the one benefit still out there. It's how to trade real estate for real estate. I know you're familiar with that. One of my favorite quotes, this is anonymous because it had to be anonymous. But uh, the great quote is, a fine is a tax for doing wrong. A tax is a fine for doing well. True, isn't it? So you just got to manage the expenses and you got to manage your taxes. I pay every dollar of tax I've ever been supposed to pay in my life. Been audited dozens and dozens of times. State of California audited us three times because they wanted the money we got from our house burning down. That's one of the costs you'll bear when you become one of those evil one percenters. Let them pick at your home. Come join me. <laughs> Rental property is another business to run. It's another business to run. You've got to stay focused. So stay focused on whatever you want to do and don't doubt yourself. Because everyone will tell you well, I just invested in this, and you're old-fashioned, and you're this, and you're that, and yeah, you bought the properties too high, and this and that, and all those kinds of things, and you stay the course, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. I'm going to tell you this. With regards to real estate, real estate wealth is generational. Real estate wealth is generational. 
You know the reason why it's so hard for the Buffinis to compete in the horse world? Because we're usually competing against someone whose grandfather did really well. Does that make sense? And they invested it, and they still own the dirt, and they still own the land. The most expensive listing in the state of California just happened here a month ago. It's in Rancho Santa Fe, $92 million property, owned by a Polish immigrant. And he was really broke, because he came with $47. He was a cabinet finisher. I'm going to say this again. He came from Poland because he was Jewish and the Nazis were coming. He had $47 and he was a cabinet finisher. They just listed his family's estate home for $92 million. And it's priced right. I dig that about this country. That you can do that honestly without screwing the rules, without breaking the laws, without being a bad person, without running over people. You can do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons and make the right reward. I dig that about this place. At the end of the day, I go home. I was born in Ireland, but I'm made in America. That's what happened to me, okay? Stocks and cash. A couple of quick tips. Don't try to be the smartest person in the room. Don't try to be the smartest person in the room. That's a phrase that's thrown around all the time. Here's a great quote on that. If you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. <laughs> I'm up here telling you guys this stuff. Here's the thing you need to know. I know my limitations in a big way. I surround myself and seek out people who are smarter than me in different areas. And I've been doing it for 30 years. And along the way, I've picked up some stuff, applied some stuff, and now that's the stuff I'm sharing with you. Next, invest, don't trade. Invest, don't trade. Bev and I, this is how brilliant my wife is. We're getting ready to move. I think we closed on March 7th. And we had a bit of work to do, and then we're moving into the house March 17th. St. Patrick's Day, of course. March 14th, Bev does, oh! Now, I hate when she does that, because my life's about to change. <laughs> oh, we have a volleyball tournament in Atlanta. Now, ladies, do you think about this? This is the depths of genius. She's out of town when we move. I mean, just, come on, come on. Let me know how the move goes. Praying for you. I'll be praying for you, babe. Love you. So we stayed in La Costa for a few weeks. My daughter Amy is also highly pragmatic like her dad. Amy and I can have a chat because we can just beat each other up all day long. It's fantastic and we both love it. And Amy's there and she goes, Dad, all this effort looking for houses and this and that. She goes, you get so stressed out of all this stuff. Why don't we just live in La Costa? They make our beds. They bring us food. What are we doing? It's a nice place. And I couldn't argue with her, but I'd already bloody bought the thing. But I was at La Costa with the family, and a certain online trading company were having their national convention. And they were there, 750 of them. Now, for three days, we didn't have to go watch the wolf on Wall Street. We were living with the wolf on Wall Street. <laughs> so I started talking to them. They're all millennials. There wasn't a single gray hair anywhere. 
they were all under 30, which I'm all for young people. I have young people in very, very prominent positions in my company. I'm very, very committed to what young people can do. I was a millionaire at 26. I'm very committed to what young people can do. But these folks were hardcore party millennials, and I started going, what in the heck's going on here? And I started having conversations as I'm going here and going here and whatever else. And I just got to tell you this, it shook me that any one of these characters was helping anybody with their financial life. And the reason was that their mentality is the trade. And I'm telling you this, it was like being at a, a gambling convention. And it was that type of bravado. It was that type of conversation. I said, hey, I might become considered a client. Tell me about this. And I wasn't, but I'm fishing, you know. And I'm like, come on, tell me about that. And it was like being in Vegas about which table was hot, which machine would work, and this and that and the other. And it was get in, get out, get gone. Da, da, da. Don't know anything about the companies. I don't know this about the whole company. I'm just talking about the people I saw and the people I had conversations with. And it's not even about that company. I'm just saying this. They were traders. I'm looking for people to help me make investments. Does that make sense? And what happens is there's a lot of people think, I'm going to make me live in being the smartest person in the room, sitting in front of a computer. I don't have to work. I don't have to shower. And I'm going to become a millionaire. And I'm going to say this to you. For every one of those, there'll be a million blow-ups. Would you guys agree? Go and get your referral for someone you can trust who has a bit of experience, that listens well, and thinks in terms of investment, not trading. If that makes sense, say aye. Warren Buffett says this, Wall Street's the only place where people ride in a Rolls Royce to get advice from people who take the subway. <laughs> Basic advice, dollar cost averaging still works. The stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. I'm going to say it again. The stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. Are you guys catching the flow here? One of the things that's really strong is a thing called ETFs, which are exchange-traded funds. And these hold assets like stocks or sometimes commodities, bonds as well in some cases, and they trade close to the net asset value over the course of the day, which means there's actually something there, there. The asset value. So I'm going to show you without showing you any numbers, I want to show you what we do, okay? So this is, I'm just giving you this because people always want to know the how-tos. I am not in the bleeding stock business and I'm not giving you stock advice right now. And I'm not telling you this is what to do. I'm saying this is our formula and this is what we've decided to do based on our situation, where we are in life. So we've decided to do the exact same thing with stocks that we've done with real estate. We have some stocks we do for appreciation and some things we do for cash flow. Does that make sense, yes or no? What do they call cash flow in stocks? Dividends. Right? So these are stocks that pay out a rate of return. They're very good companies. They run very well. They make money. And what they do is they make so much money, they say, we're going to give some money back to the investors as a payoff every year. And that's a cash flow. That's just like a rental property. Are you guys with me? Yes or no? Now, if you're buying a stock, you're hoping. Most people are always thinking in terms of appreciation because that's the big sexy thing. But I'm going to say to you, both of these are equally good. So, for example, one of our funds that we're in would be a dividend equity ETF. So you see that where it says dividend equity ETF. So that's an exchange-traded fund, and it's a dividend fund. So it's a fund of, here's Microsoft and Coke and Verizon, Chevron, Intel, Johnson, Johnson, yada, yada. Pfizer, Procter & Gamble. So these are all bellwether companies, very solid. And look up here. They're more likely to spit off cash flow than they are appreciate. I mean, where does Microsoft go? It can appreciate, but it's such a giant company. 
Are you guys with me? So it's more likely to spit off cash, and it's a well-run company with more than a year's worth of cash in reserve since its inception. That was a Bill Gates thing. And so it spits off dividends. So you get a nice return. You're not going to become a bazillionaire that way, but it's a solid, it's a cash flow decision. Now the same issue, which is an ETF, so this is a broad market ETF. And this is done for more of a case of some appreciation, okay? And it requires more explanation, but there's different companies in here, okay? They'd like to see Facebook's in there, Amazon's in there, good solid companies, all right? And then you get something like this, which is QQQ. That's a really good one that we like. Might not be good for you. But again, this is a fund, and you'll see the kinds of companies that are in this, all right? So here again, you'll see a lot of the same companies, but now just a little more broader. There's Google's, there's Cisco's, there's Texan. There's some other dynamics in there, okay? So those are some decisions that were made based on this and this, and based on that, that's what we're doing. And for me, I don't go around picking individual stocks, and here's why. I'm really, really sold on real estate. I'm really, really knowledgeable on real estate, and that's what I, I, I will buy individual properties, but I don't know enough about any individual company to go, here, there's my grandkids' education, here. Here's that charity I want to fund in Ireland, here. I won't do that. You, on the other hand, you might be further down the path than that. You might have relationships in different places and so on and so forth. No matter what, here's the most important thing I want you to hear. Get some professional help. Okay? And I want you to know this. I get professional help. What do we really want? If you go for both, which one will you get? Yes. Does this apply to real estate? Yes. Does this apply to stocks? Yes. Apply these principles, review this book, and you'll be well on your way. Love it, Brian. If we follow the culture and work more to spend more, we'll end up where we've always been. We learned about getting ahead by starting with a working budget, moving towards a surplus, and then building a fortune. If you'd like to hear Brian live, then make plans to attend his premier event of the year, Mastermind Summit, held at the beautiful San Diego Convention Center, August 4th to the 6th. Visit buffiniacompany.com slash mm to learn more. As always, thanks for listening. And as we finish, I'm going to leave you with an Irish blessing from Brian's mum, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.